fantastic sermon by preacher this morning. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you were unable to. Um, I actually found in his introduction, uh, he laid some just tremendous groundwork and uh, he taught me quite a bit just in the introduction before he ever got into his message um, on the simplicity of salvation. He spoke uh, tremendously just early on in the sermon and I really appreciated it. So uh, go back and listen to that if you get a chance, if you were unable to be here this morning. So uh, Genesis chapter th- number 37, begin reading in verse number 12. The Bible said, And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here, I, here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. If you're not exactly familiar with what's gone on so far up until this point, uh, Joseph is a godly young man. At this time, he's only 17 years old, and he is uh, uh, part of a, a pretty large family. And one day he came into the breakfast table and told of some dreams that he had. And uh, the dreams basically mentioned and, and pictured that his brethren and his father and mother would eventually bow down to him one day. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a child that uh, maybe said some things uncomfortable or maybe made their siblings mad at them. But I, I would say that if somebody came into the breakfast table and said, hey, oh, by the way, I'm going to be far more successful at you than life or at life, I think that that might not go over so well. And certainly it did not with uh, Joseph's brothers. And we find that they began to become very angry at him, not only because of the dreams, but also because his father uh, just loved him greatly. He preferred him. In fact, he made him a coat of many colors, which you are probably very familiar with. And, and so there's a lot of animosity leading up into this point. And even if you were to go back just a little ways, you would find that he already ratted out his brothers one time for not feeding the flocks properly. In other words, he came to his father and he gave an evil report of them. And now he's coming to them again in pretty much the same situation. I believe you understand the passage. You, you kind of think that he caught them again. I think that they were probably not feeding the flocks the way that they should have been. They were guilty not only the first time, they're guilty again here. And there's great animosity. They're very jealous of uh, Joseph. And so they all get very angry and they kind of begin to conspire against each other. And they say, behold, this dreamer cometh. So there's a lot of backstory to where we are now in verse number 20. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Now, I love Joseph, one of my favorite characters in all the Bible. I think he is uh, probably, in my opinion, the best type of Christ in the Old Testament. 
He is a godly young man. Uh, he uh, maintained his character like few other men in all the Bible in a situation that seemed dire and hopeless at many points in his story. He kept his faith in God, which by the way, is not easy to do. And he kept his faith in God, even when he was in the prison, he kept his faith in God. And, and the butler and the baker had forgotten about him. Well, the, the, uh, uh, the, but, the baker had definitely forgotten about him, but the butler had forgotten about him as well because he was serving in Pharaoh's house and he didn't remember him. And so uh, we, we have a very interesting story. And I love the story of Joseph. However, tonight we're not learning about Joseph. We're not going to look at his story. We're going to look at one of the lesser known of the brothers. We're going to look at this young man in verse number 22. The Bible begins, or in verse number 21, the Bible begins and says, And Reuben heard it, this plan to uh, slay Joseph, his brother. Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. Well, that sounds good. I think that's what a lot of folks would have liked to have done there is, is they hear something very bad going on and Reuben steps up and delivers him out of their hands. And, and he said, let us not kill him. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? Guys, what are you talking crazy? Have you ever been around a conversation where somebody just starts talking crazy? And you say, you, you're just talking, you, I don't even know where you're coming from. Let us not kill him. Reuben's speaking some good stuff here. And Reuben said unto them, verse 22, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness. Reuben, you were doing so good up until this point. You seemed like you were really taking a stand, and you were going to lead them into making a right decision. But now, instead of murdering Joseph, he's kind of settled for a less bad uh, at least in his mind, a less bad situation. He says, oh, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to throw him into a pit in the wilderness where there is no water or food. So what he did is he compromised. He compromised. He said in his mind, how can I work the situation out so that nobody's offended and that nobody's hurt? How can I do it? He compromised. Let's continue reading. The Bible says that he might rid him out of their hands. And I want you to see this in verse 22. To deliver him to his father again. So Reuben had decided that he was not only going to get them to agree to the secondary plan of not killing him but putting him into the pit. But his purpose in doing this was not so that he could abandon him there. But was so that he could return later retrieve Joseph, get him back to his father's house, and then he would just have to say to his brothers, guys, that was, that was really crazy what y'all were thinking about doing. Now Joseph's okay, we, the situation's in hand, no worries. So he was very conniving here in trying to deliver his brother from the situation. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't just stand up and say, guys, this is wrong. What are you thinking? Guys, this is wrong. Let's not throw him into a pit. Let's not kill him. Let's not sell him to the Ishmaelites. Guys, this is wrong. Man, our world is lacking for a lot of Christians that will just stand up and say that. This is wrong. And instead of saying vehemently without any apology, this is wrong, what we do is very much like Reuben. We try to work the situation out. We try to mold it and manipulate it to the point where 
we can look our Christian brethren in the eye and we don't have to be ashamed when we go to hang out with our worldly friends. That's where we're at. That's where Reuben was at. And I'm afraid that's where a lot of Christians today are at. The Bible says uh, in verse number 23, And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So they're following Reuben's plan to a T so far. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And at some point in verse, between verses 23 and 25, it, 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 it is just has to be assumed that Reuben departs from their company. Reuben, the man that orchestrated the entire plan in the beginning, he had to leave for some span of time. Maybe he had another lunch appointment. I'm not exactly sure. But as the brethren sat down to eat their picnic, if you will, this is what happens in verse 26. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? By the way, motivated behind almost every compromise in the world is some form of profit for the person compromising. Profit is the, is the main motivator of almost all compromise. You say, well, what about when churches compromise? Oh, if they can just get a few more people in the pews, they'll compromise. If, if, if a business can maybe uh, cut corners here, have you ever done business with somebody that cut corners here and they compromised in the integrity of their work, why would they do that? Well, it's for profit, to make a better margin for themselves. And, and that's what Judah says. He says, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Oh, now we're talking family talk. I mean, guys, what we were talking about earlier was crazy. I mean, I voted yay for the murder strategy, but this is far better because after all, he is our brother. He's our flesh and blood. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by uh, Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And this is why I said earlier, it has to be assumed that at some point Reuben leaves their company. It's because he is unaware of what they've done in selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites. The Bible says in verse number 29, And Reuben returned into the pit, fully expecting to see Joseph at the bottom of it. Maybe a little dehydrated, maybe a little disappointed that his brothers cared about him, none. But, but he expected Joseph to be there. And the Bible says, Joseph was not in the pit. And he rent his clothes, and he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. Let us pray. Father, I pray tonight that you would help us as we try to unpack this very uh, hard passage of Scripture. Hard only because sometimes we are guilty like Reuben. 
And Lord, I pray that everything that is said tonight would be done so in grace and understanding. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help me and lead me in this pulpit so that I would not do it to offend folks, that I would not have any uh, agendas or motives behind what I'm saying other than preaching a biblical message so that we as Christians would understand there is tremendous danger and compromise. I pray tonight that you would help us. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Now I love going to car dealerships. And you may say that I am crazy. And believe me, there are certain parts of car dealerships that I do not like. But the one thing that I do like about going to car dealerships for is to negotiate. I love negotiating. Uh, I, uh, I, I love the, the, the back and forth. I love the banter. I love uh, the, the thrill of trying to get a good deal. And by the way, if you're at a car dealership and you buy a car, rest assured you did not get a good deal. That's just the way it works. They're in business to make money off of you and you're in business of buying a car from them. That's the way business works. And if they ever tell you, I'm losing money on this deal, They've got you hook, line, and sinker, and you're a sucker. So I, I do love going, though, because uh, uh, recently I had the opportunity to go and negotiate a little bit. And, and I will say this, just maybe point, sub-point of my sermon, they took me back behind the desk where they actually do their negotiating from, where their sales managers are. I think at the particular dealership that I was at, they called it a bullpen. And uh, they were back there, and they have computers. And I tell you, if you think you have it going on with your Cars.com app and your calculator app, you are sadly mistaken. Because the vehicle I was trading in, they pulled up a software program that showed 460 other vehicles exactly like mine within a 400-mile radius of this area, what they had recently sold for, what they would be selling for. So, by the way, you're outclassed the very moment you walk in the door. But I love it anyway. I love trying to, well, no, you said this. No, why would I do this? I, I had one of them hand me a piece of paper and say, what's the lowest number that you'll take for your truck? And I said, well, I was wanting to get this. And he said, no, 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 what's the lowest number you'll take for your truck? And I said, well, I have to get this. And he said, he wrote that number on a piece of paper and slid it over to me. He said, okay, sign your name at the bottom of that. And I said, hold on, before I do, I want you to go back to your sales manager. I want you to ask him what the very bottom dollar he'll take for his truck is. And I want you to write that number on a piece of paper. And I want you to get him to sign that number. And then we'll exchange numbers. And then we might work out a deal that way. But I'm not going to sell you my truck to, for the very bottom dollar. Just like you're not going to sell me my, your truck for the very bottom dollar. That's not the way business works. And I, I love it. I love the back and forth. And you say, you're crazy. I'll never forget. Now, I will say, not only are you outclassed when you go in there, but they don't fight fair. Because when you go in there, you know what you can do. You know what you're capable of. The problem arises when they're able to just sit there and freeze you out. You see, they don't have to get an offer back to you. He's on the clock. He's going to work till the store closes anyway. You've got places to go, things to do. But they'll make, their, they'll make you sit there for 45 minutes before coming back to you. You think they need that much time? No, it's psychological warfare. Making you sit there, it's very, very unfair. I'll never forget when we were negotiating on buying our church buses. We went down and I had a pretty big hand in negotiating that contract. And uh, 
the guy at one point, the owner of the bus sale company, got so angry at me that he almost called off the entire sale, which, by the way, was a significant amount as we were buying seven buses from them at the time. He, he almost called off the entire sale. He just got so mad at me. He thought that I, I was accusing him of taking advantage of us. He just got so angry. He, he got up and left. I mean, he just was so put out with me. Well, at the end, as we're signing the paperwork and, uh, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, he goes, you know, if this preaching thing ever doesn't work out for you, I'd gladly hire you as my negotiator. (laughs) I love it, though. I really, really do. But in every negotiation, you must understand that there are concessions from both sides that must take place. It's compromise. Negotiation is not going in, throwing a number on a table and saying, can you meet that? That's not negotiation. That's a demand. Negotiation requires compromise. And I'm afraid Christians have become better at negotiating with the world than they have at just standing against the world. We've become better at compromising with them than just saying, this is what I believe God wants me to do. And no matter what you do to me, I will not budge from this. Are we good negotiators or are we good Christians? Tonight I want to ask you, I want to preach to you a sermon called The Tragedy of Compromise and the Lies that We Tell Ourselves. The Tragedy of Compromise and the Lies that We Tell Ourselves. Now, before we get into the sermon, I really have to kind of help you understand what I mean when I say certain terms. So, for a little bit, we'll talk about Christian ethics. What I mean is, we throw around terms that we all assume we agree on, but, but your definition of one term may not be my definition of a term. And when we say them and we understand things differently, we may not be on the same page. So, tonight... Let me explain to you a few things before we get into this idea of compromise. Number one, there's a such thing as Bible commands. Bible commands. Let me tell you what a Bible command is to me, and I hope that maybe most of us will agree. And if not, at least you'll be able to understand the context of the sermon moving forward. Bible commands transcend time frames, cultural boundaries, racial lines, and all circumstances. It's a biblical command, meaning it doesn't matter if it's convenient in Africa or America, a biblical command should not be uh, based upon the situation that is at hand. It is a biblical command, and it it behooves the Christian to follow that command because God commanded it in His Word. These commands are non-negotiable, and they are never changing. These are always, though, always explicitly outlined in Scripture. So you've got to understand that. I, I've heard preachers preach some crazy stuff. I, I've heard preachers preached against wearing pink. Now, coming from a redhead... I don't necessarily wear pink that often. I think it was two weeks ago I wore a tie. I was bought for Mother's Day several years ago. It has a little pink in it. And I think Brother Jeff Alk may have stopped me and mentioned something about my tie. It's like, pink, huh? You know, I just don't ever wear pink. I said, this is the most pink you'll ever catch me dead wearing. Uh, some of you guys change it to salmon, but let's be honest, it's straight pink, okay? And and I, I've, I've literally heard preachers preach against wearing pink and you know, I, whether that's your, you know, what you like or not, that's one thing. But 
But biblical commands are explicitly outlined in Scripture. And, and what I believe is most Christians, or all Christians, should be able to agree on biblical commands. The problem is we, years ago, began to compromise even on the uncompromisables. We began to change that which was unchanging. And I will say it was probably exactly the same time period where we changed that was unchangeable, meaning Scripture. We began to change Scripture, so therefore our biblical commands began to change. So biblical commands never change. But, but here's where we got to understand. Biblical commands and biblical convictions are not the same. Biblical commands are never changing. They are in every place at all times. Uh, it doesn't matter if it was 1st century Jerusalem or 21st century Joshua. Biblical commands are always the same. Biblical convictions are not. Biblical convictions are derived from biblical principles and are established, now notice this, through the Spirit of God's leading. You want to know why we have a lot of Christians that are compromising? Because most of their convictions were handed down from their parents. Your convictions must be your convictions. They cannot be borrowed. If they are borrowed, they will be surrendered. If they are borrowed, they are nothing more than a bargain chip. Biblical convictions must be your own. They cannot be those of good Christians around you. A conviction is not something that you discover. It is something that you purpose in your heart. A conviction is a belief that you will not change no matter the situation. Why? Because a man who has biblical convictions believes that those were God-given biblical convictions. An example of this would be the reason I use the King James Version of the Bible. In the Bible, there is no verse that says, Thou shalt usest the 1911 King James's version of the bibliography. It doesn't say that. You know why? Because there's no way it could have. And by the way, if you're reading the 1911 King James version of the Bible, it's going to be very difficult for you to actually read, as most of, well, all of the U's were V's in that Bible. And so uh, it would have been very hard for us to read. And so, so we understand that the King James Version, or this is what my personal conviction is, is the King James Version of the Bible is the inspired and preserved Word of God in the English-speaking language. That does not mean that Brother Franco has to learn English to read the King James Version of the Bible because he believes he has a version of the Bible that was preserved in his language. There are several reasons why I believe the King James Version is the God-given version of the Bible for the English-speaking people. Number one is because of the texts that it, that, it, that it uses. And we could get into this much deeper than I'm going to, but there are uh, texts that the, Bible, that the King James uses that no other Bible uses both of. The, the text that the King James Version uses is not the same that the New King James uses or that the New International uses or that the American Standard or any of them uses, it is very unique in the texts that it uses. It is very unique in the translation style that it uses. In other words, there are two forms of translation styles. There is dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. And we're getting into it a little bit, but dynamic equivalence would be translating entire thoughts. In other words, if I said, at the Lord's Supper, 
Jesus ate cornbread, the thought would be conveyed that they ate supper and they had bread. And that's okay. That meets the standard of dynamic equivalence. Now, if I said to you, at the Lord's Supper, they used unleavened bread, you say, well, that's more accurate anyway. Exactly! You see, it's very important that Jesus didn't eat cornbread because cornbread has leaven in it. That's why it rises. Leaven in the Bible is a type of sin. It's a picture of sin. It always represents that. So how could the the body of Jesus have leaven in it, therefore picturing the sin that was in Jesus' blood? You see, it's a problem. And you say, that's just one example. There are thousands of them. The King James Version, unlike most other English versions of the Bible, uses what they call formal equivalency. And it's very easy to remember how we would go to a formal dinner. We would dress up. The meaning is this, every single word is accurately conveyed. It didn't matter what the translators thought. It didn't matter what they wanted. It was whatever the word meant. It was whatever the word said. And, and, and you can disagree with me or not, but this is my personal conviction, not the one that you have. This is my conviction, okay? And so uh, I believe in the translation style. I believe in the translators. Do you know the men that translated this were the most qualified men in the world? There was approximately 70 men who checked, cross-checked, and double-checked everybody's work. They, they would uh, translate entire portions of Scripture, and then they would send them to another place where another group of men looked at that, evaluated it, and made sure that all there was, theirs was right. And so this was translation styles. And, and, and the fourth one, and this is just my personal thing, I believe time has proven that God's blessings have always followed the King James Version of the Bible. Time has proven that every English revival that we've seen uh, in recent memory has been with the King James Version being preached. And you say, well, that doesn't matter. It does to me. And I believe there is no verse in the Bible that says the King James Version of the Bible is the preserved word of God. But I do believe, and it is my biblical conviction, God-given, not daddy-given, God-given biblical conviction that the King James Version of the Bible is the Bible for the English-speaking people. Do you understand? Now, it's different than a command because commands are explicitly given. For instance, thou shalt not kill, meaning thou shalt not murder. That's not, we shouldn't murder people. Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are commands, and they're clearly spelled out. They they go from Old Testament to New New Testament. It works forever in all time and all places, biblical commands. Biblical convictions are unchanging, but they are purposed in the heart. Quite similar to how Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not eat the king's meat. Everybody else could if they wanted to, but I'm not going to eat the king's meat. Convictions always form in the heart. You with me? Now there's biblical commands, there's biblical convictions, and then thirdly there is preferences. And we have blurred the lines of all three of these. But let us understand what a preference is. They're no less meaningful to the Christian life because we all have to have preferences. right? If you don't know where you stand, chances are you don't stand anywhere. And so we've got to know where we stand on all these. So a biblical preference is settled in the mind of the believer. We take biblical themes... And we use logic and we understand in our time and culture what we believe God would have us do. For instance, 
A preference is a very strong belief that is held with great strength. But preferences do not transcend cultural boundaries. Preferences do not go all places and all times. In other words, the dress of a first century Jewish man going to church would be quite different than ours. Now, my preference is that I would wear a shirt and tie to church, but it would be silly of me to say that a first century Jew should have wore his wingtip shoes to church. You see, these are preferences, but they are not commands and they are not convictions. I believe that we ought to dress up to come to church. I believe this. Now, I'm just telling you what I believe, okay? I'm not trying to offend anyone, and I am certainly not trying to put my preferences on you But I believe taking scripture, I see that there is a theme that God is concerned with the way that we look and the way that we present him, ourselves, especially in his presence. Do you know in Joshua chapter 3, when the Lord was going to appear to the people, the command was given from God to Joshua, to the people, that they were to sanctify themselves. In other words, hey, go wash yourself and your clothing For tomorrow, God's going to show up. And I feel like if we do anything less than dress our very best when we come to church, what we're fully well admitting is God's probably not going to show up. Because if he were going to show up, we would want to be our very best. That's why my expectation is on Wednesday night, me and our staff ought to be in suits and ties. You know why? Because we of all people ought to expect God to show up. If not, what are we doing throughout the week? Are we not praying that God would move in our church? Are we not working so that God would move in our church? So my expectation is that our our leadership at our church would dress up. Now, dressing up may be different to you than it is me. I know some cowboys in this church that the best pair of pants they own has Wranglers written on them. And that is fine. But dress up. Dress your very best to come to church. That's what I believe. And I will also say that there are times when these preferences just frankly are not convenient. I'll give you an example, and I'm not trying to dismiss preferences, but I'm saying this. Uh, How many of y'all know how American Airlines charges $25 per bag per way now if you go on a flight, okay? You know how hard a suit is to pack and carry on luggage? So there have been times in my life recently where on a trip to North Carolina, I did not pack an entire suit, but rather I just packed slacks, a shirt, and a tie. You know why? Because it was easier to fit in the bag. It's not that I don't believe, you know, that God's not going to show up at freedom, which I don't know, it is North Carolina, but, but, but you see, it just didn't make a lot of sense. And, and another thing, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to expect missionaries to dress exactly like we dress in cultures that are not exactly like ours. You see, if a pastor in Hawaii wears a a Hawaiian beach shirt or whatever they call those to preach in, I'm not going to criticize him because I don't understand the culture there. Just like a, a Filipino uh, missionary, he may wear a, a uh, you know, they have those white shirts, they have designs on them and they have the collars up here. That is their suit. So my preference is that we would dress up to come to church and, and I'm not going to put my preferences on you just like I expect you not to put your preferences on me. Because they're biblically themed, we, 
we, we take logic and we take scripture and we try to understand them as a whole. We all have to have preferences. But by the way, your preferences don't have to match up to my preferences so that we can get along and be Christian brethren. Look, I'm not going to look down on you or shame you if you don't match up with me in everything. I'm just not. But these are my preferences, okay? And here's really where we, we come to an issue. New person gets saved in our church. They come from a life of sin. The Bible tells us where they were spiritually. They were at enmity with God. They never sought to please God. Even the best people that get saved know nothing about pleasing their Creator. And so they have to come through this learning process. Here's the issue. How do we give them a place to develop as a Christian, grow in grace, without giving them our convictions and without giving them our preferences? You see, we, they have to happen organically. The Holy Spirit of God has to develop these things in their life. We can't do it for them or else they will not last. And there's really, I believe, one of the problems with assimilating uh, new Christians into churches. As soon as they get to church, we say, well, you've got to wear a dress if you're going to come to church. Well, why? Well, that's just what I believe. And so we, this is a real problem. But here's, here's what I believe. It's, it's kind of like this. It's, it's like when you come home from the hospital and you have your child for the very first time. Maybe it's your first child. And I know we have some uh, people in our church that are expecting their very first child. And probably right now they're saying to themselves, what do I have to do to protect the house so that my kid doesn't get into stuff? What I find comical about this is for the first, I don't know, six to eight months, your kid's going to lay where you put it. They're not going to motor around. They can't go anywhere. They are where you set them. But most good parents will do this. They'll go around the house and they'll cover the plugs. Right? Uh, The drawer with the cleaning supplies, they might even put a drawer lock on that. Why? Well, we're protecting the new child. We don't want them to hurt themselves. So here's here's what we give new believers, new converts. Biblical standards. At first, you know, one day the infant child will learn how to use an electric outlet. Probably for their cell phone, frankly. But, but one day they'll need to know that information. But right now it's not okay for them to just deal with that whole thing. They don't understand it all. They don't understand the danger. So what we do is we, we cover those things up at the first, at the onset. But one day we're going to have to take the cover off the plug. One day we're going to have to let them know that, well, this isn't necessarily wrong for everybody. It was just wrong for you at the time. You, you see what I'm saying? I hope, I hope we understand that. And that is not an extra biblical uh, uh, concept. In fact, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll explain it to you. What's going on is there have come teachers into the church saying that you had to be circumcised and you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be part of the church and in order to uh, uh, be a Christian. And the big wigs of, of fundamentalism at the time, Christianity, the very big wigs meet together. I mean, I, I'm talking about guys like Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James. And they all gather at the church at Jerusalem to discuss this issue with these people that are, uh, that are telling this, this false doctrine, frankly. 
And so what they do is they gather and they work together as to how to present something for this very young church so that they can understand there are certain boundaries and guidelines. Some of them aren't exactly unbiblical, but these are guidelines we want to set forth for you. And so the Bible says in Acts chapter 15, but there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. Now, at this gathering, here's what they came up with. And they sent this with two men to deliver to the church. Verse 29 of Acts 15 says, That ye abstain from meat offered to idols, and from blood, and from the things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. Now, the very first one ought to raise some level of interest at least because the first one is this the uh, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols do you know there's another passage in the bible that speaks of that and did you know there's another passage in the bible that doesn't say it's inherently sinful to eat meat offered to idols in fact first corinthians 8 paul says it's not exactly sinful there's certain we have knowledge and the knowledge is this anything offered to an idol is offered to nothing Uh, There's no such thing as a God that's not our God. We believe in the one true God. And if somebody wants to offer meat to another idol, they offered it to nothing. And he's saying, with our knowledge, it wouldn't necessarily be wrong to consume the meat. But he says, but if there's somebody else that doesn't have that knowledge, and they see you eating that meat, what might that do to them? And that might cause certain issues. And so their recommendation was that you would just abstain from meat altogether. It wasn't sinful. You know what it was? It was the outlet cover. It's not necessarily wrong, but one day we'll we'll help you understand what this means. One day when we, we develop, and by the way, spiritual liberty is for the spiritually mature. I've heard some of the most spiritually immature arguments over spiritual liberty in my life. It's unbelievable people that have no concept of what liberty is. Liberty doesn't give you a pass to do more. Liberty is willing to do less. Willing is is you being able to say, look, I'm not going to be brought under the power of any, so I don't want to call it be a stumbling block to my brethren. In fact, the Bible kind of gives us this idea that uh, we ought to use our liberty very carefully for two reasons. Because we should not use it as an occasion to the flesh, And we should not cause another brother to flop. So there's Christian liberty in the the midst of, you say, Brother Andrew, we are very terrified because it is 730 and we have not gotten to point one. You're good, I think. We have biblical commands. We have biblical convictions. We have biblical preference. And then we teach biblical standards to protect people that do not have any of these others. You you understand? So when we say, yeah, he's just got way too strong a standards for me. Well, are we all in agreement on what a standard is? A standard is to protect people. Uh, In other words, uh, the teenagers will go on a, a youth outing, especially when it gets dark. We ask that our boys and girls sit on different sides of the bus. I think it's obvious why, because we don't want our girls talking our boys' ears off. (laughs) But we'll put our girls on one side of the bus and our boys on the other side of the bus. 
Is there anything biblical about that other than just the, the obvious? I mean, does this say that we have to do that? Come out from among the girls and be ye separate? Does it say that? I don't think so. But the point is, we're, we're trying to teach a biblical standard there. So your biblical preferences are yours and yours alone. You ought not use your preferences to beat other people over the head with them. And conviction should never change in your life. Are we all in agreement on what these terms mean? Biblical commands are non-negotiables, really. That's what God said, and if thus saith the Lord, we ought to thus doeth us. That's, that's just what we ought to do. So this is where we're at. And here's what I'm worried about. I'll never, never in my life forget the very first place and I saw this statement. We are a seeker-sensitive church. I'll never in my life forget that statement. I was a young man, maybe 14 years old, and even then it shook me to my core because church ain't about seekers. Church ain't about seekers. Seekers ought not leave suggestions in the box on how we run church. It is, not, it is not a democracy. It is not something where we all come together and we say, well, we should do this and we should do this and we should do this and then we can have church. No, you know what seeker-sensitive churches have, have culminated as? They have culminated as churches that meet four times a week. Most of the time, it's only on Saturday and Sunday. And the only reason they're meeting four times a week is because three of those times they have the exact same service. It's culminated in churches that have taken what used to be hour-long preaching times and they've exchanged that for 50 minutes of singing and 10 minutes of Bible teaching-ish. That's what it's culminated as. You know why? Because unsaved seekers don't want to hear good Bible preaching. Unsaved seekers would much rather listen to, listen to talented singers sing. And so what we've done is our 21st century American church has compromised everything that God wanted them to do. And now we have a bunch of spineless and what I believe unsaved individuals going to church. This church was about them. It was never about Christ. By the way, if Christ be lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. Not if the preacher, not if the singers, not if the choir, not if the people in the pews be lifted up. Christ must be magnified in church for church to have any effect on anyone. So where are we at with compromise? What is the tragedy of compromise and the lies that we tell ourselves? Number one, you will lose your opportunity. Every situation you're put in is a situation to glorify God. It's a situation where you can take a stand, where, where others may not agree with your stand, where others may not say, hey, yeah, good for you. It is an opportunity where Christ can be brought into the center of the conversation. When, when a Christian just says, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. I'll never forget when I was much younger, I was playing for the Joshua Jets. It was the first time I ever made the A-team in Little League football, uh, in Pee Wee football. And I was playing for the Joshua Jets. And we went over to this like uh, party that they were having for the team. And, and they had a catfish pond. And man, if you knew me at that age, about all the, remember I told you about getting a bait when I scored my first touchdown a few weeks ago. Okay, So I was really into fishing. I wanted to go fishing in this pond. I'll, I will never forget this. They brought beer out, 
and my family left. We were the only family that left, but we left. And as a little kid, I'm like, man, that's a bummer. I wanted to go fishing. I didn't even understand it. But you know what? Even if nobody took note of it, they, even if they didn't take note of it, at least there was an opportunity for say, hey, where'd Andrew's family go? Well, they had to leave because we brought out the alcohol. You know why? Because he's the pastor at Joshua Baptist Church. And he didn't make us feel bad about it. They just said they weren't going to do that. What it does is it brings your Christian faith to the forefront of the conversation. Every opportunity to take a stand is an opportunity to glorify God. And I get that Reuben's situation was one where everybody was in agreement on the plan. Yeah, let's kill Joseph. I get it. But how admirable would it have been if he had just stood up and said, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. This is wrong. This is ungodly. We ought not even be thinking like this. We should, we should go confess to God our sin right now for the thought even coming into our mind, this is wrong. Very much like the Hebrew children. It's kind of like those guys that uh, they were commanded at what time they heard the music that they were to bow down to that golden idol that the king had set up. And the, the music played and they didn't bow down. And then the king brought them forth and gave them another opportunity. And he, I love the way he explains the directions like they didn't understand it the first time. It's like, you know, when, when your wife, did you not hear me? You know, that's kind of how the king treats them. Uh, and he says, Here, here's what you got to do. You got to bow down. When the, I'll give you a second chance. And they say, oh, king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. It wasn't like we really needed a lot of time to deliberate. You don't have to filibuster us. (laughs) We've decided we're not going to bow. We're not going to do it. Every opportunity to take a stand for God is an opportunity to put God in the forefront of the conversation and to glorify Him. But every time we compromise, even if it's silently, we fail Him. Nobody takes note of faith. Nobody takes note of boldness. Fearful silence is the language of cowards. And if no one knows where you stand on an issue, chances are you don't either. You see, when we fail to stand up for God in situations where biblical convictions are called on the carpet, when we fail to take a stand in these situations, we fail to take advantage of the opportunity. And here's the lie we tell ourselves. Yeah, you know, if I, if, I say, if I stay silent, maybe I won't have to take a stand. Did you know that this is not the first murderous plot of the Jacob boys? In fact, just a few chapters earlier, it's a, it's a long story, but uh, basically one of Jacob's daughters is, is uh, taken by one of the citizens of that country and and she's slept with, and she's defiled by him. And then he wants to be all admirable, and he comes to uh, Jacob and says, hey, we need to get this thing right. We need, to, you know, we need to arrange a marriage, and I'll give you whatever you want for a dowry. And Jacob's no doubt angry. He waits to tell his children. By the way, the Bible says he waited till all the brethren came back from the field. If you just follow kind of all the other times, Reuben would have been there. And yet, there's this plot that Simeon and Levi come up with. 
They say, Here, here's what we'll do. We'll go to them and we'll say, hey, we, we can't intermarry. We can't become friendly until y'all circumcise. And, and then we can kind of go through with the proceedings. So everybody agrees to it. And then Simeon and Levi go and kill all of the men when they're recovering. This was in chapter 34. This, this plot to kill Joseph is not the first time that the Jacob boys have discussed murder. And yet you never hear Reuben's name the first time. Yeah, if I just stay silent, maybe the problem will go away. No, the problem never goes away. The problem will keep coming up and keep coming up. And the first time you stay silent and the next time you'll compromise. When you have the chance to take a stand for God, stand boldly for Him. You know why? Because the righteous are bold as a lion. You know why? Because they're, they're right. You can be bold when you know you're right. Number one, you lose your opportunity. And the lie we tell ourselves is, if I stay silent, then maybe I won't have to take a stand. Number two, not only do you lose your opportunity, you lose your influence. And here's the lie we tell ourselves. If I compromise, then I can have peace with both parties. Isn't that exactly what Reuben does? Reuben's got his brothers over here and they're saying... Hey, if we just kill him, our whole problem will go away. We won't have to be angry at him. We won't have to be jealous of him. We won't have to hear any more about these dreams he keeps having. Our problem will go away. And Reuben's sitting there going, well, I don't like the sound of that. And then he, he launches his mind to supper that evening. And he says within himself, man, that's going to be awkward sitting around the dinner table and dad saying, hey, do you all know where Joseph is? And we're all going to say, nope. And we know full well we murdered him. And Joseph doesn't want to have any angst with his dad. And he definitely doesn't want to be the Debbie Downer of the whole brother situation. So he's caught in the middle of it. And he he surmises that the way to handle the issue is just compromising so that he can appease this party and appease this party as well. Yeah, I'll just take care of it in the background. I'll, I'll take care of it behind the scenes. That's a lie. You know the Bible says no man can serve two masters. You can't play middle of the road. You, you, you can't be on the fence as a Christian. You're either serving God or you're serving Belial. It's really that simple. And the Bible says that over and over again. Joshua puts it like this. Sir, uh, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. You cannot play both sides. And, and when you try to play both sides, here's what happens. You lose all of your influence for God. You have no footing with them over there and you have no footing with them over there. You are rendered useless as far as your influence goes. This is exactly what Lot did. He went into Sodom. Uh, We don't know a great deal about what he did there. I actually believe that Lot maintained his righteous testimony while in Sodom, but seeing and hearing their unrighteous deeds, that's what frustrated his soul. That vexed his righteous soul. In other words, in seeing and hearing all the wickedness that was around him, He lost all of his influence for God. Because when the two angels come into town, he invites them into his home. They come to the door, they knock on the door, and they say, hey, we need to speak with those men that came into your house this evening. And Lot goes to the door and says, guys, do not so wickedly, is the words that he says. Do not so wickedly. These men are my guests. You can't do this. I'll even give you my daughters and do with them what seemeth well to you. But don't take advantage of these men that I have in my home. And the men in Sodom look at him and they say, Who are you that you judge us? You you came wandering into our town 
And now you're acting as if you're better than us. Who are you, Lot? And here's what's sad. When, when the angels have to wrestle him back into the home, by the way, they open the door, wrestle him back in the home, slam the door. They say, Lot, tomorrow we're leaving. You need to go find all of your family members. You need to go find your sons-in-laws, your daughters. You need to find them all. We're going to leave town. So the next morning, Lot lingers, but he finally goes to the, his, uh, his daughters and his sons-in-laws. And he says, we got to leave for God's going to destroy the city. You know what the Bible says about him? He seemed to them as one that mocketh. You see what happened? Lot is trying to negotiate with the t- inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. He has no power. There's no footing there. They don't respect him. And then he goes to the people that should respect him, his own family, his flesh and blood. And he says, guys, you got to listen to me. I'm dad. You know I know God. You know I have a relationship with God. And he's told me that he's going to destroy the city. You've got to come with me. And they say, you're hilarious, Lot. This is crazy. He had no influence with anybody. And every time we compromise, we lose influence with both parties we're trying to compromise. We try to appease them and we can't please them. We try to appease God and we can't please Him because God is not pleased by wishy-washy Christianity. We lose our influence for Him. And then thirdly, not only do we lose our opportunity, we lose our influence. Thirdly, we lose our control. And the lie we tell ourselves is this. This one compromise is not going to be a big deal and I can always go back if I want to. Look at verse number 22. The Bible says, uh, uh, where are we at? Genesis 37, verse 22. And Reuben said unto them, while, uh, uh, while Reuben is there, Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that, that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. That's verse 22. Now skip down to verse 29. While he's gone, they make a different plan to sell their brother to the Ishmaelites. And Reuben returned unto the pit. Behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and whither shall I go? What am I going to do? What what, what am I going to say to Dad? You guys is half-cocked scheme, you you guys' plan now has included me. I didn't even want to be a part of it in the first place. You're the one that wrote me into this thing. I wanted to just put him in the pit. I wanted to take him on home. I wanted him to give him back to dad and talk sense into y'all. But instead, I compromised a little bit and I've gone so much farther than I even want to go. And now Reuben was probably the guy that dipped the coat. Reuben was probably the guy who put the blood on the coat. That's what happens with compromise. It's a slide you do not even realize. It's so gradual and, and you don't even really tell what's happening, but compromise will always take you farther than you ever imagined you'd be willing to go. There was this time when I went to the dentist. I believe it was the very first time I ever had any major dental work done and they numbed my whole right side of my mouth. And uh, my mom was sitting there in the room, and uh, they were doing the work on my teeth, and uh, they had given me the numbing medication. And at one point, I looked at my mom, I was like, Mom, I can't feel my cheek. She goes, that's normal, Andrew, it'll wear off. I said, no, Mom, you don't understand, I'm biting my cheek, and I can't feel it. She goes, Andrew, don't bite your cheek. 
Because what you do now, you're going to feel later. Well, that was probably a really smart thing to do. But I wanted to see how numb I was. So I began to just chew on my teeth, uh, on my cheek. I began to bite as hard as I could just to see if maybe I could eventually get to some level of, uh, uh, of pain tolerance. But nothing ever happened. I was just sitting there gnawing on my teeth like, or on my cheek like bubble gum. You know what happened? The, the, the effects of that numbing medication began to wear off and I realized that the damage had already been done. There was no going back. It was what it was. I had chewed my cheek up. That's what happens in compromise. At first it seems so harmless and innocent, but, but eventually you're left to deal with the ruins of what you've done. You're trying to piece back together situations where, where you say, oh, it won't be a problem if I just compromise on this one biblical conviction. I'll just be able to go back to it at any time I want. Reuben could never get back what he did. He could never take a stand because he had lost his opportunity and he had lost his influence. He had lost all of these and he had certainly lost his control of the situation. It was just now in a free fall. Wherever it ended up, that's where Reuben was. What a shame. The story is told of a family who moved from New York and wanted to move out west. They wanted to own a cattle ranch. They were quite wealthy and so they moved out west and they acquired a cattle ranch and they decided to invite some friends from New York to to come down and see their new ranch and see their new home and and even see all that they had. And, And so when they got there, the the people from New York, they were very excited for them and they saw how nice everything was and they said, well, what did you guys end up naming the place? And, and, and the guy, the, the father looked at the folks that they invited and he said, well, I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife favored the Susie Q. One son liked the Flying W and the other wanted the Lazy Y. And he said, well, what, what did you settle on? Those all sound pretty good to us. And he said, well, we're calling it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. And he said, well, you know, we love the ranch. It's a beautiful place, but we thought the whole reason you're moving out here was to own a cattle ranch. We've seen the ranch, but where are the cattle? They said, well, none of them survived the branding. You see, compromise never leads to gain. In every compromise, there's a surrender somewhere. You have to give up to get. And sure, churches are compromising and they may be getting folks to come to their church. What they're doing is they're compromising the message of God to please the men of the world. We're we're compromising. Christian, there are certain things we ought not be compromising on. And I'm not talking about the standards, which I think it's good to have a church with high standards. And I think that standards are important, especially for for people that don't fully understand what Christian liberty is all about. I mean, it's kind of crazy to tell somebody, hey, by the way, you're saved from your sin and you can never lose your salvation, so go at it. (laughs) It's kind of a hard thing to tell somebody. And then you try to explain to them, well, you're under grace and you're not under law, but you shouldn't do these things. So I believe in having a high standard for Christianity. I don't think Christians ought to spend much time in places where they used to spend it before they got saved. I think when you come out from the world, that's exactly what you should do. You should kind of not be where the world is anymore. So we have high standards. 
And biblical preferences are very good. I think we ought to have high biblical preferences. You know what biblical preferences are? It's an outward manifestation of what's taking place on the inside. It, it's, you know, I come to church and I dress up. I dress up when I come to church, not so that I can impress you. Not so that you can look at me and say, man, Brother Andrew always wears the nicest suits. Yeah, some of them still coming from college, so that's pretty good. I still fit into them. You say, I don't come to church to impress you with the duds that I wear. I come to church for the Lord. And the faith that I have inside my heart says, God, I want to give you the very best I have. I give you my first fruits, and Lord, I give you my best fruits. That's, That's a biblical preference of mine. The biblical preference would be the music that I listen to. I don't want the world to seep into my music. You understand? And, and whatever you believe about music, ask yourself the next time you turn your music on, does it sound godly or does it sound worldly? Uh, me and Brother Charlie heard a, a Christian school football stadium the other night playing music. I promise you what they were playing did not sound godly. What does your music sound like? See, these are biblical preferences. Biblical convictions are unchanging. You see, I'm not going to change on my perspective of uh, homosexuality. And and I, I, I firmly believe that one day in our country, preachers will be taken to court because of what they believe about homosexuality. It'll one day be deemed a hate crime just for simply preaching truth from the word of God. And we can say we love the sinner, we hate the sin all we want to, but those people are so filled with hate towards the message that we have, one day it will be a real problem to say things like, God is not for homosexuality. But I'm not going to compromise on that, because that's a biblical conviction, and it's found in Scripture. And it's not my idea, it's God's. By the way, this thing of Christianity is not ours to do with it what we want. We did, not de- we did not create it, and we should not spend time manipulating it. We ought to find time getting into our Bible and finding what God wants for, his, for faith in Him, and then live that out in our world. That's what, and so that's what we believe about biblical convictions. But at some point, because of pressure, because of circumstances, Christians have began to compromise. My fear is one day we're going to look back and we're going to say, look where we were and how far we've come. And would have been so gradual and so small, small choices that you'll never be able to take back. By the way, Dad, every decision you make in your home is a decision that more than likely your kids are going to do in larger amounts than you do. You, you can't just dismiss it. Oh, it's no big deal. It is so important that we raise a high banner and standard for Christianity that our kids will look up at it and say, oh, not that they would say, oh, it's just a bunch of rules, but that they might know the Savior for which we live that way for. Don't compromise your biblical convictions. Compromise leads to loss. Compromise leads to death. 